So the reading this morning is from 1 John and chapter 2, verse 28. It's towards the end of the Bible, if you're not familiar. One John chapter 2 verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, that's Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Thank you, Tim. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word which speaks to us and the stories we've heard today of how uh, meeting you in the Bible has changed people's lives. And we pray for that same power in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, can I just add uh, my welcome to you um, if you are here or watching us online. Hello, people at home as well. And you're doing that because you're a friend or family member of someone getting baptized today. We're delighted you're here to share in this experience with us. And we've loved hearing your friend or family member's stories. Now, someone once showed me a book that a Christian had written for people like the people who are getting baptized today, people who've recently trusted Jesus for themselves, and it's a book for them to give to their friends and family, maybe that's you, about what's happened to them. And the book is called this, My Mate's Gone Mad. It'll appear on the screen. Maybe that is how you feel about what your friend or family member is doing here today, taking part in this strange religious ritual talking in new ways, as if things you had always assumed were stories or non-factual are actually real. Perhaps they've even joined a cult. Um, I promise you are not a cult. Come and talk to me later and give me your money, which is a joke, a joke. You uh, have seen your friend or family member change in a way that has changed your relationship with them. And maybe that's been hard or uncomfortable for you to experience that. It's changed the way they relate to you. Often what people say, this may or may not be your experience, but what they say about their friend or family member who's become a Christian is, yep, they definitely have become happier and sort of nicer and a bit more contented, but they also think some really random things that are important, and that is unsettling and difficult for me. And also, just to be clear, you're not going to convert me to this. My mate's gone mad. Well, in some senses, you're right. I mean, not to be rude about the people we've just heard speak. uh, But in some senses, something pretty radical has happened. The baptisms we're about to see symbolize the most radical of changes you could possibly imagine. 
We've just read it. <clears throat> going down into the water symbolizes dying. Coming back up symbolizes new life. Your mate who's gone mad thinks that when they trusted Jesus, their old life finished. And they started an entirely new life. We had it read to us just there from the Bible. It describes it as being born from God. That is, a new life is born when you trust Jesus. That is a radical view. It's very strange and different from what most people think. But I do want to say today, it's not mysterious. It's not impossible to get your head round. And I hope you'll give us a few minutes to help us explain it and help you understand it. This letter uh, Tim, and you said Pete, Tim just read uh, to us from in the New Testament in the Bible was written by one of Jesus' first followers to a small group of Christians, uh, a church who were struggling to understand the real meaning of this big change that had happened to them and what it would mean for their lives. And they were trying to work out together what that would mean. And as we gather here every week at Christ Church Liverpool, that's what we are doing too. We're a group of people who think we started a new life by trusting Jesus. And we're helping each other what this new life works out like in practice. And John, this follower of Jesus, wrote this letter. At this bit we're at, he acknowledges this huge change has set them at odds with the people they used to be closest to. Did you see that as Tim read it to us? It should come up on the screen what John says. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's talking to Christians, and what he's saying is, there is a difference now. It might feel like gears are crunching between you and your mate. It probably is true you don't recognize something about them anymore. And John says the reason the world, that's what he means, doesn't know us Christians is because you don't know him, the God who made everything. If the, new, if the person in your life is strange to you, John is very sort of stark about that and says because they've met someone life-changing that you haven't met. Now, just to be clear, the invitation that they've accepted is also an invitation to you. John can be clearer. Wherever you're from, whatever you're like, the invitation is for you to know God. Joe shared with us very movingly, didn't he, about how that made all the difference to him. Jesus didn't just die for me. He died for everybody. Everybody needs this and is invited. This thing that's happened to them hasn't happened because they're better than you or more spiritual than you. There is nothing more likely about them than about you for, uh, for this to happen to them. It's simply they've met God. So we're going to see three things today that John shows us about your mate who's gone mad and become a Christian, but they're all things that you could accept as well. Here's the first one. Your mate has been loved. Um, one of the great things about our church, as you might have noticed, is that there's loads of people from different cultures here. And once some people in our church, uh, they've moved on now, they're uh, part of our church, who were Italian, invited me and my family round for a meal. I had three small children. And we went round at midday, and they brought out pasta. And you know what it's like when you take your children somewhere, you're like, eat that, or I will cast you out of the family. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to hear your comments about this pasta. I only want you to eat it. So we got through it. The pasta was eaten. 
And then our friend Francesca said, and now for the next course, and brought out like a whole platter of roast chicken. I was like, oh right, in Italy pasta's a starter, how amazing. <laughs> Time is marching on, and we were like, please eat some chicken, children. Then she was like, and now for the next course. And she brought out like a huge salad with like cheese and everything in it and everything like that. It was like five o'clock. We were like, gosh, our kids are like about to move on to the next meal now. <laughs> she was like, and now for dessert. It's tiramisu. Again, something my children wouldn't eat. Uh, so we had a long afternoon of keeping our children caged and away from being rude. Now, I love that culture because it so sums up the word that John uses here in 3 verse 1. It's so lavish. It's like this outpouring of great and unstoppable brilliance, much more than we could ever have deserved, much more than they would have got if they'd come to our house. This outpouring of lovely stuff to us. And John says to these Christians, feeling a bit vulnerable in a world where those closest to them don't quite get what they're about, Look at the love God the Father has lavished on you. God, through Jesus, has like poured out amazing love to you. It's unstoppable, far more than what you deserved, far more than you would ever give God back. He loves to lavish love on us. And that's because, as he says, God is a father. That idea might be familiar to you and it might not. In some traditions, it's considered very blasphemous to say that God is a father because God is viewed as pure and mighty and holy and above such things. In other traditions, the idea that God could be a father is very strange because God is just a sort of force out there. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know my favourite TV programme of the moment, it's now finished, is a TV programme called Married at First Sight. Uh, I think this is the last time that's going to feature in a talk. But... People keep talking to me about it. The series is not over. Anyway, there's someone in Married First Sight called Amy, and she says she's very spiritual. But what that seems to mean is like lying on a sofa and put crystals on her head and try and sort of tune in to something out there that might be God. If that's what God's like, sort of like electricity or something, he can't be a father. You know, a force doesn't, doesn't father things. But the Bible says the basic fact about the God who made the universe is that he is a father with a son who he loves. That's just his nature. He is a father. It's interesting, there's a few new fathers in our church at the moment. And what you see when fathers have their babies is this love just pours out to their child. And that is what God is like in himself. Now, for some of us, I guess the father picture isn't totally helpful because of our experiences of fathers. But to assure you this picture is used, God is a father, a perfect father, an eternal self-giving father who has always perfectly loved his son. Before there was anything, there was a father lavishly loving his son perfectly. That's what God's like. But let's be honest, perfect families can be irritating. There is somewhere that uh, I have to go semi-regularly. I better not say where in case the people ever watch this and identify themselves. And I love my family. I have twins uh, who are six. And I basically think that's great because it's an excuse to arrive everywhere late and not be dressed properly and like uh, your kids to fight with each other. It's like, I know, but we have twins. So 
I'm sorry we're disrupting your quiet day, but, you know, twins. <laughs> anyway, there's this place that we go semi-regularly that I, you know, we sort of get in and my kids are like, when will this be over? And uh, all making noise and everything. And always sitting in front of us, there is a perfectly still family with two sets of twins. <laughs> my nemesis people. A perfect family, just if it's to watch, is just irritating. Just makes you feel bad. I'm not as perfect as that father loving his son. But did you see the difference about the love of this perfect father is that his love for his son overflows out to us. It's not there to make us feel bad. It's there to include us. And it's not just overflow makes, makes it sound a bit like there's a bit left over that comes to us, but that's not the word. It's lavished out to us. This love that God the Father has with his son Jesus pours out unstoppably to normal people. There's so much love they want to include other people in it. God says, I'll welcome you into my family and you can have the same status and importance as my own son Jesus. So has your friend gone mad, or have they just been loved? Because being loved does funny things to people. When you realize you're loved, you behave in a totally different way. Has God's love been lavished on them through Jesus so they can confidently say, as they all have today, with all my faults and problems and brokenness and mistakes and things done against me, I'm still totally accepted by God and loved by him. That's what it is to be a human being, to be capable of receiving and being welcomed by God. And John in this letter has said, Jesus was a real historical person, but that first century Jew Jesus was the son of God the Father becoming human so that human beings like us could join the family too. And he can hardly believe it, John, when he's writing this. He says, we're children of God and that's what we are. It's like hard to get your head round. How could we possibly be included in God's family like that? But that is what we are if we trust in Jesus. The truth is so good, I guess, John is saying. Sometimes it's hard to believe. Sometimes we forget. We lose our grasp. We don't behave like people who have been loved like this. But John is saying to these Christians, that is what we are Everything we see was created out of the perfect love of a father for a son, and you can be included in that. And if you're watching that from the outside, probably doesn't make much sense to you. Seems a bit weird and strange. But listen to the person you know who's on the inside. That's the promise, and it's on offer to you. Here's the second thing they've seen. Your mate thinks the future is bright. That's Amy from Married at First Sight, by the way, which she does with crystals on her head. Your, keep going. Your mate thinks the future is bright. There we go. If you're in Generation Z, which is the generation now in their 20s, it's all bad news for you at the moment, isn't it? The boomers, who are the people older than me, they have got all the money in the property and they are keeping it. They're going to charge you more tax to pay for their social care. You'll be paying the government back for your education for years to come. And sadly, you had your party years during a pandemic, so like, that sucks. 
there's no gas to heat your house that you won't be able to afford to buy anyway. And even if we find some gas to burn to keep you warm, it'll ruin the world for generations and you'll have big problems to sort out when we've all died. Generation Z is the most depressed generation ever, and it's not surprising because all you hear is bad news about the future. It's landed on you. Now, I can't change that, and I'm certainly not saying that Christians never get depressed, but John is saying that people who trust Jesus, who ask him to enter God's family, who experience that lavish, lavish love of God, are always confident about the future, whatever is unfolding now. That's one of the claims of Christianity that is most likely to seem weird to you, but is probably most needed, as we've just talked about. That Jesus, the person who walked around in first century Israel, is returning in glory, and he will put right everything that is wrong. And so John's saying to these Christians... Remain in him, remain belonging to him, so that when he arrives to put everything right, you'll be totally confident about him coming. The judgment he makes will put everything right. He will judge everyone who has done wrong of any sort, but you can be confident and unashamed if you already know the person who's doing the judging. Now notice, the people who are confident and unashamed when Jesus returns, they're not people who've never done anything wrong. They're not proud and pious and holy people. They're people who are in him, who have accepted what Jesus is offering. When he turns up to sort everything out, it won't be like some people are like, oh, I've been good, I'll be okay. And some people are like, oh, I've been bad, I won't be okay. He'll turn up and some people are like, yeah, yeah, I know this guy. And some people will be like, who's this guy? And John is saying the invite is to get to know him first before that happens. Now, the idea that someone, I actual historical figure, was actually God and is going to judge the world seems miles away from what most of us think is normal. And yet, how hopeless life is for so many of us. When I've just listed what we're told the future holds, it's pretty grim. And we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. What's it like for most people? But hope comes from the most unlikely places. Perhaps never the places you would have expected. And I'm telling you that Jesus, the Son of God, can offer you hope for the future. It might be crazy for you to hear that. But, you know, what's the alternative Who else is offering hope? He can do it. And I encourage you to look at him. And the particular hope of the Christian is that this adoption by God, which we've experienced now, will totally transform us to be like him when he returns. That's an amazing hope. I don't know. You don't have to live long in this world, do you, before you feel tired of the world. I'm pretty tired of yourself. Oh, I'm just tired of my rubbish reactions to all the rubbish things going on around me. But there's hope. When he comes, I'll be like him, perfectly connected to God with none of my bad reactions getting in the way all the time. There is God in heaven who is a father who cares about injustice in the world and he will one day put it all right. And I will be free 
from all the ways I'm getting dragged back into what's wrong. It's such a hope. And can you see that really believing that will make a difference now? That's what John says. I think it will come up on the screen. Anyone who has this hope in him will purify themselves just as he is pure. Can you see if you're totally loved and you think Jesus will make it right in the end, it will bring out of you a different character. If you're unfairly treated, instead of taking revenge, you can not take revenge. Forgive and put it right because Jesus is going to put everything right in the end. Or maybe you're full of anger or hatred for people who've done wrong things to you. That's eating you up, maybe. You can be free from all of that. Because the person you can trust will make it all right in the end, will judge it in the end. Maybe there's something else you're living for, for yourself, for success, or money, or sex, or to be loved and praised by others. But if Jesus, who's lavished love on you, and he's the one making the final judgment that will count. There's no need to keep grasping for that stuff, is there? You can be free. Uh, one of the things, you know, I live in Liverpool City Centre, and one of the things, the end of the pandemic, you know, which is good, obviously, that it's on its way to ending. But one of the things it has brought back to where I live is stag parties. And that's something I wouldn't have minded if it stayed in the pre-pandemic era uh, going on around my house. Stag parties are a strange thing, aren't they? They basically seem to be built on the sort of assumption that marriage is going to be terrible. So you need to have a really good time for like one night or a weekend before you end up like, you know, imprisoned forever. It's like, do everything you can't do before you're married, before you get married. It's like how stag parties work. But I'll tell you this, a friend of ours, of our family, recently got married, and he couldn't wait to get married. He couldn't wait to be with the person that he loved permanently. And so what he did, he didn't go out and do all the things he won't be able to do when he's married. He didn't do that. He began to get everything ready for that day. Sort of like tidying up his flat and painting the walls and cleaning the bathroom occasionally and, you know, sorting out his pad... Now, I could have said to him, I guess, listen, she's going to marry you anyway. Why bother cleaning the toilet? You know, it's, it's not a deal breaker, that. You know, don't need to do that. It's a waste. But he said, no, because this love is coming, I want to get ready for it. Because I love that person. And that's what John is saying. He says, if you have this hope that Jesus, who has loved you, is coming to sort out the world, what you begin to do is change your life to be like him now. Hope does that. And maybe that's what you've noticed in your mate who's gone mad. Third and shortest thing, your mate's life is really changing. I want to give you today the warmest possible invitation that I can from John, wherever you're at, to enter, like the people we've heard today, this inner life of God, to know him, to walk this road that they are traveling. And people getting baptized, and everyone else actually who's here who is a Christian, who has trusted Jesus, I want to invite you to call you to do what John says here, continue in him, remain in him. It's 
quite literally sort of let yourself stay in him. Now, John makes it super clear in his letter, you're going to get things wrong later on in life, loads of times. No one is commending perfection to you. More about that next week. But what he is saying is, is let the lavish love of God, your sure and certain adoption, the future hope, let that just like sit in your heart. Let that control you and shape your decisions. Remain in him. And your life will be shaped and formed into someone who knows this amazing love of the Father. His rightness in your life, the thing you're made to do. So people getting baptized today and everyone else who's a Christian as well, John is saying, do whatever it takes to remain in him. Change comes through knowing you're loved. Do everything you can to know that you're loved. Change comes by hope for the future. Do whatever it takes to keep your focus and joy on that hope. Remain in him. That's why baptism is such a great picture. We're actually going to like dip them right in under the water. And it's a picture of like immerse your whole life in Jesus. This rightness that you get with God, people getting baptized and everyone else. But I want everyone to hear that I say this. It really does not mean pulling away from the people who have always mattered to you. When John says the world doesn't know you, he's not being sort of like negative about people you know who aren't Christians. Because if you read John's writings, God is very interested in the world. God loves the world. So he is not saying, well, now you've been baptized, like withdraw a bit from those people. He's saying, no, They will find the way you are a bit weird now, but your job is to be like God towards them all the more. Loving the world. And if you've been loved by God, if your future is certain, if God has lavished his love on you, his child, you can put up with that strangeness between you and people who don't know God for their sake. Because you're safe with God. Many of us are Christian observers of this baptism. But every baptism is for the church as much as it's for the person getting baptized because we get to hear God's call again to see how great the love of God is that he calls people like us children of God. John has to keep saying, remain, continue, persevere. Because not being recognized by the world can be a tough gig. And maybe that's what you're experiencing right now. Tiredness of the strangeness you feel. Well, can I call you to be shaped by these amazing truths? Listen to John, listen to them, for they are for you. This is good. It is worth you remaining in Jesus because this great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that really is what we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love your son Jesus and the, the uh, 
you and the Son and the Spirit plan and long to include us in that family as your children. You lavish that love on us. We're so grateful. And we're grateful for this chance to celebrate that today in baptism. And so we pray, please um, help the people getting baptized today and the rest of us who trust you to continue and remain and persevere in you, even when we're not recognized by the world. Help us love the world the way that you do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.